about, well, the NATA this and the NATA that. You know, we are the NATA. It's a member organization, and every single one of us who's a member is part of the NATA. So it behooves you to get involved and to let your voice be heard. And there are people that want to hear your voice and want to have conversations with you and want to understand what your perspective is. Welcome to the NATA Cast, the official podcast of the National Athletic Trainers Association. The NATA Cast is your audio source for exclusive insight from NATA, our leadership, and athletic training thought leaders. This show will feature in-depth conversations about healthcare topics that interest you, the athletic trainer. Today's discussion is part of a special series titled Dedicated, in which we visit with ATs who have a passion for the profession. Whether it's in a leadership role, an AT who is making strides in research, or a member who is bringing increased awareness to the profession by working in an emerged setting. Dedicated highlights their stories and path as they advance athletic training. Hello, and welcome to the Dedicated Podcast Series. I'm your host, Katie Scott. I'm NATA's Association Project Manager and Certified Athletic Trainer. Today's guest is NATA incoming Board of Director for District 1, Vicki Graham. Hi, Vicki. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Take me through your first moment of when you decided to put your name in the hat for district director. Um, gosh, I, I um, you know, I, I rolled off the secretary kind of in the middle of in June of 2020. And, um, you know, it was in the back of my mind, but I wasn't really sure and had com- conversations with um, some people that I'm, I'm close with in the district and in the profession about it and, and really got good feedback and was encouraged to, to run. And, um, you know, made the decision to to do it. I had about a year off of, of not serving um, directly for the district. I still was on some EATA committees and um, that was a nice break. And then I, you know, kind of was was all in um, ready to run um, when the when the call went out last uh, January. So talk to me more about that, though, because for a lot of people, I mean, being a district director at NATA is a huge undertaking and a big commitment of both your time and talent. So what about that position was appealing to you? Well, to to be perfectly honest, I I never in a million years, you know, ever imagined I would be a district director. When I was, you know, a young AT, I, you know, those people, I looked upon them, saw them at NATA and just thought, you know, these are the elite of the profession. I'll never, I never even dreamed of it. And, um, you know, I've served through the years and, and honestly, even, even, Moving on to the District 1 Executive Council and then becoming District 1 Secretary, um, I, I still didn't quite feel like, oh, I'm going to run or I, I might run or I should run. And I got in the room with the District Secretary Treasurer's Committee and realized that, you know, a lot of district directors came out of that room because that's been a traditional path to leadership, you know, not because of the DST, but just because secretaries and treasurers tend to move up. And um, so I, I had an understanding of that then. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate now that I'm in a position where I, I, I have good support from my employer. I'm working, um, remotely now I teach remotely for American public university system. So I'm teaching full time, but I can, um, we're asynchronous so I can work from anywhere, which gives me a lot more flexibility than someone with a traditional bricks and mortar type of job. And, um, I think that's really the, the biggest 
um, thing that uh, pushed me, kind of pushed me over the edge was that I really thought that I, I was going to be able to balance it with my with my job. And I have tremendous support from um, my employer. My department chair is actually also an athletic trainer. So um, I have really, really great support from the university as well. And it, I just have a great deal of flexibility with my job. So I think that is the one thing that's going to allow me to to take on the director position. So I know it, it's very, very early on in your tenure, but in five years from now, when you and I are having another one of these great conversations and you're at the end of this tenure, what do you hope to have accomplished? Well, I, I really want to represent District 1 well. I want to be a strong voice in the in the boardroom and um, I want to continue as as I've done all along to try to advance the profession. I think that um, we're at a at a kind of a critical point in a lot of respects in our profession, and I think there will be some difficult and interesting conversations and decisions within the boardroom. And um, I, I, again, I just hope to to be a strong voice in that boardroom and contribute and, and help to advance the profession. So if I can finish up and say that I, 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 you know, did my best and I represented both the district well and the profession well, I'll be I'll be very happy. If someone wants to ask you what kind of leadership values are you possess or you feel are important to make a great leader, what would those be? Um, I, the, the one thing I think I've learned the most is that really to, to be a good leader, you have to listen. And you not only have to listen, you have to hear people. Um, you know, a lot of times you're in meetings and you're sitting there and you're thinking about what you want to say or what you're thinking you want to say or the point that you thought before you came to the meeting that you wanted to make sure you made on this agenda item and we're not hearing what other people are saying. And that's not just in a in a meeting. That's also out when you're talking to members or talking to colleagues and, and really hearing what people say. I mean, I, I think some some of us get kind of tired of hearing similar complaints over time about a certain issue and it kind of can go in one ear and out the other but i think we really need to listen to each other and and understand where someone's coming from um and, and we whether we agree or disagree on it on a topic doesn't really matter i think we have to hear each other and it gives us perspective on what what the other side in some cases thinks or feels or perceives to be true um, or just what it, what another person, you know, what their perspective on things is. So I think the, the number one thing I've learned is that not only listening, but but hearing people is is extremely important. I think it's a really important point. It seems like that is not only a challenge for leadership, but it just seems like it's important for life right now. I feel like as a humanity, we're having a really hard time listening to each other. That's, It'd be interesting to see what happened if if we did that more in practice. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it would I, be great. I think, yeah, I think we all could could stand to to listen a little bit more and to hear other people a little bit more and and you know give each other a little bit of the benefit of a doubt instead of just just fighting constantly. Um, Absolutely, Vicky. Within your volunteering, have you noticed any impact within your career trajectory? Like, has volunteering and your your career growth ever kind of collided and affected one another? I, I don't know that they've necessarily af affected one another directly. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the fact that I've 
been involved in professional service over time. You know, it's clearly it's on my CV. And I think that it, it's looked upon favorably when you apply for a position, usually that you've done service of some kind. Um, I think that signals to some to an employer that um, somebody's willing to take on different roles beyond what their primary position is. And it kind of shows you're a team player and that you're going to collaborate, work with other people. Um, but I think I, I frame that, you know, from that standpoint, when I when I've talked to people, when I've interviewed for positions and been asked about it, I mean, I've been able to frame it is is the service is not only something that I do, but something that I learned from that's benefited me in, in my job. Um, no matter whether I've been, you know, I've worked clinically most of my career. I've also taught throughout my career. I've had administrative roles um, within those jobs. So I think, you know, enhancing my own communication skills and being able to, to be a collaborator and to problem solve really creatively because, I've been exposed to a lot of different ideas and, and approaches by everyone else. When you, when you volunteer for a long time and serve with a lot of different people, you get a lot of different viewpoints and um, personal styles. So I think that I've been able to kind of frame the things I've gained from volunteering. I've gained some skills that I can apply, whether I'm a clinician or an administrator or an educator. So I, I don't know that it's directly, you know, parallel to any aspect of my career tra trajectory, but um, I think I, I, it certainly helped me within my career. Um, so Vicki, we have a lot of young and upcoming volunteers who maybe are hesitant to put their name in the hat because they're concerned about their ability to effectively time manage their career as well as with their volunteering role. Um, what advice do you have to our younger volunteers who are maybe on the fence about putting their name in the hat because of this concern? Well, I, I think that you just start slow. I think that if you're interested in in serving or getting involved in any way, um, that you just start slow. And I, I always advise um, people who want to get involved and are, are, like you said, on the fence. I always advise people to talk to their um, to the state president or the chair of a committee in their state that they're interested in um, and to ask them, how can I help? Or just even walk up to them at, at a at a state meeting and say, hey, hi, this is who I am. This is where I work. It's nice to meet you. If there's ever anything I can do, let me know, or I'm always looking to get involved, but I'm not sure what might be available. And, I, you know, when I was a state president, those are the people that, you know, I had had a list of people that had approached me and or emailed me about different issues because I knew that they were paying attention and were interested. So just, just start off slowly and um, you're not, you don't have to run for office. You can just serve on a committee or you can do something like volunteer for an event. A lot of places will have fundraising events. We have a state and district one that has a golf tournament every year. Um, lots of our states, when I was in Connecticut, we used to work a concession stand in a minor league baseball game, a couple of games a year. And, you know, the whole booth was manned by CATA members for that day. And we, we got a pretty good fundraising, you know. Um, it was a good fundraising event for us. We always wanted people to help. So if you can do something as simple like that, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal, but you're raising, you're helping raise money for the association, which, you know, does things that, you know, pays lobbyists and helps promote practice acts in the long run. So um, it really does help. And, you know, if you just volunteer to help at the registration desk at your state meeting or, you know, that's such a good idea. It's such an easy way to network with people, too, because everybody has to come to that desk to sign up <laughs> and get That's their badge, right. right? 
Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's just easy little things that you could do. And you get a network too. You get to meet a lot of people. And, you know, at some point, something will come open. Um, and they're going to say, hey, we see you every year at that desk. Why don't you, you know, come on and be on this committee? I know you work in the secondary school setting. Come and join our committee. We need another person, you know. So um, I, I just start slow and don't let it overwhelm you. Um, the other thing that I'll say, I, I, you know, I also I don't tell this story too often, but I, I, you know, I volunteered in different capacities over my career. And at the, the point where I really started to up my involvement with the CATA was at a point where I was in a job that I really wasn't very challenged by. I wasn't burned out or anything, and I wasn't necessarily unhappy with life. I just wasn't challenged by the job, and I was in a position personally where I knew I was going to need to stay there for a couple of years, um, and it was just a you know kind of biding my time type of situation, and and I needed something else to help challenge me and make me feel fulfilled professionally, and um, I started to get more involved with the CATA and served on some committees and things like that, but um, that that little bit of time actually made me feel, gave me so much energy and made me feel so much better about myself that I was actually doing something that was making a difference, even though that it was little things that I was doing. You know, I edited a newsletter, the, the CATA newsletter, which, which was quarterly. So that wasn't a big deal, except for the time you're putting the newsletter together. Just because you're busy at work doesn't mean that you you can't carve out a little bit of time to to have involvement with some committees. And it, you might be surprised at what you get back from it. And it won't seem like it's such a big ask because you're going to do things that matter and you're going to meet people you wouldn't meet otherwise. And you're going to have a good network and you're going to come in contact with people who sort of care about the profession and want to see it succeed and move forward. And you don't get caught up in your own little world of, you know, gosh, I hate my job and all those kinds of things. Well, let's actually jump into that a little bit because we do have a couple questions from our membership specific to burnout and fatigue. Um, we know that that's a pretty overwhelming sentiment about the profession. We've heard that pretty loud and clear within the recent membership reimagined survey that went out earlier this fall. What would you say to athletic trainers who maybe are on that hamster wheel and are experiencing those feelings of career burnout or career fatigue? Um, do you feel like volunteering is the right thing for them to do at that point? Like, does that help offset burnout or fatigue? Or what advice do you have for someone to get off that hamster wheel, so to speak? Well, I, you know, I think it's a case by case, you, you know, answer to that question as far as is, is volunteering the right thing to do? It might be for some people mm -hmm. at that point in time, it, it would depend. And, you know, why are they burned out is the other piece of it. Um, is it all work? Is it work and home balancing? Is it, you know, are there things that can be changed to make things better. I think part of the issue is, I mean, I've heard from people that tell me how, how miserable their job is and they're, they have no support from their athletic director and coaches are running all over them and all these things are happening. And, you know, it's just the kind of stories that you hear that you're thinking you have to get a different job. And sometimes that's really the answer. I mean, a lot of, I know people, I have colleagues that have stayed in jobs they're miserable at for years. I'm not sure why when they had opportunities to go elsewhere. So sometimes we bring that upon ourselves. And so I, I don't know that I have a, an easy answer to that question. I think sometimes getting involved is helpful because I think even just being around other people, if you're on a committee and you've got, you know, five or six other people on a committee with you and you're talking and having conversations, you know, that invariably things come up about how, how are things at work or 
you know, how's your situation at this place? And I think those those relationships that you build are things that are really, really helpful. I mean, I have very, very close friends who I, I trust with almost anything in my life that I know I've never worked with them except on volunteer committees, you know, in the district or the state or the or the NATA. You know, it gives you some people with outside perspective that can be very, very helpful. Um, and not just in your own um, kind of age cohort of the people that you know that maybe if you're an early professional that you just graduated in the last five years, that's mostly who you know. Mm-hmm. It gives you a bigger range of, of people with different experiences to help um, bounce things off of. And you don't hear, you know, you don't necessarily hear the negative all the time. I think the other important thing, too, is is when we're talking about volunteering, I know we mentioned like volunteering at the NATA level, but there are so many other ways that people can get plugged into volunteering. They can volunteer at the district level, at the state level. They can volunteer outside of athletic training. They could volunteer at their local food bank. Um, Absolutely. But the important thing is just to get involved. Um, Vicki, another question we got from our membership is asking more about conflict management. I think it ties in nicely to what you were saying earlier about taking the time to listen to each other. Um, but the question is, is what has been your strategy when working with peers who don't share a common goal with you and may actually be taking action to be counterproductive towards your effort? Uh, you know, the first part of my answer really is what we already talked about, that you, you have to truly I think you have to have a conversation. I think you have to have a direct conversation. And I would say, for me, it's more listening than talking, at least in the beginning. I think it's it's what we talked about earlier. We You have to understand where someone's coming from. And sometimes, you know, most people usually have good intentions and their tactics might not be particularly effective or they may, might not realize they're doing something or they're saying things that aren't counterproductive or that, or that are being interpreted in ways that aren't maybe even as they intended. So I, I think that, you know, it just goes back to, to having a conversation and hearing other people and having a civil conversation, I guess, is the biggest thing. And trying to, you know, understand that we're not going to all agree on everything all the time, but we have to try to find common ground or at least understand someone's else, uh, someone else's perspective and, and really where they're coming from mm-hmm. and, and try to you know, again, find a little bit of common ground and not just butt heads and, and argue all the time because that gets us nowhere as we as we see, as we talked about earlier. I love that answer. Vicki, let's back it up a little bit and go back to the beginning. What is your first memory of athletic training? <laughs> well, I always tell people, you know, Katie, that I have an accidental career, which I, I kind of think I do. When I was in high school, I took chemistry my junior year in high school. And in the spring, I signed up for this uh, elective class for the next year for uh, it was athletic injury care or something like that. And the teacher I had in chemistry was the person who functioned as the athletic trainer at the school, the trainer at the school. Um, he, he wasn't certified, but he had had some medical background from having served in the military. He saw that I was on, you know, registered for that class and said, oh, hey, do you want to, I need some help in the fall. Do you want to help with football? You know, we had a couple of people that helped me that graduated and I, he knew I didn't play a fall sport at the school. I played some elsewhere. And I said, you know, said, well, why not? 
And the next thing I knew, you know, he, number one, got an okay from the football coach. And then number two, they sent me to, they paid for me to go to a a workshop, like a two or three day workshop up at Miami University in Ohio. I grew up in Cincinnati and um, I went up to this workshop at Miami, which wasn't a Kramer workshop, but it was very similar. And um, a lot of athletic trainers from around the state were there as, as course faculty. Um, And I kind of, got dumped into it. Then I came back in August and preseason started and we, you know, I've worked football all season. I loved it, had a great time. And then kind of, you know, went on to everything else I was doing my senior year and applied to college and went and changed my major a few times and then started thinking about it and thought, you know, I really, really like this. And one of the things aside from being involved with sports that I liked was that typically the people aren't sick. You know, if you go to med school, you're going to end up dealing with sick people in a lot of cases, depending on what area you go into. Mm -hmm. So that was appealing to me. And I ended up walking into the office at Bowling Green and ended up getting into the program there. And everything went from there. I thought I was going to be a teacher and work in a high school because that was really, that was a common route at that time, but it's also kind of all I knew. So that was really as far as my mind could go. And then I realized, well, gosh, these people that are working here have jobs and all they do are be athletic trainers and maybe they teach a class or two, but mostly getting paid to be athletic trainers. And I realized that I could actually get paid to be an AT. So um, I went straight from there to grad school and I've kept going. So what? Um, talk to me more about the transition to now you were talking about how your job is mostly hybrid, virtual, remote type stuff. So how did your career kind of get to the path of where it is today? <laughs> Oh, that's a good question. Well, I, you know, I've worked clinically most of my career in, I've worked in a lot of different settings, but I've worked primarily in intercollegiate settings. I've worked in division one and division three, both. Um, I've done some time in the secondary school setting. I like the age group in college better, but I've done um, a couple, (laughs) yeah, a couple stints there that um, coincided with work in the, in the clinic, Mm -hmm. which is just not, you know, it's too much of the same thing for me. So I get too bored being in the clinic all day. So I've done that for a lot of years. And then um, about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, I got a doctorate in athletic training. I went through the program at Idaho and started applying for teaching jobs. And I eventually managed to get a full-time job during the pandemic, believe it or not. I taught as an adjunct for for a period of time after finishing my doctorate and um, also done some good clinical work at the same time. But I got hired as part-time at APUS during the pandemic, and then they had an opening, a full-time opening, not long after I got hired, and I got hired for the full-time opening. So it's just right place at the right time, maybe. I don't know. But I I love the flexibility. I love the flexibility at this time in my life. Mm -hmm. I still do a little bit of clinical work, not a lot, and, and I'm okay with that at this point. There was a time where Every time I th- thought I'd oh, I'll step away from this for a little while, I, I'd go back. Um, and I, I still enjoy it, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's kind of time to not stand in the rain and the snow and all of that stuff for me. It's been an interesting transition to being, being hybrid. Uh, a, a high percentage of our students are a- active duty military. So we've got students all, literally all over the world in every time zone, which is why we're asynchronous. So, you know, I love the flexibility that the position allows me and get to meet a lot of interesting people and hear a lot of interesting stories. So I have answers to this, but I want to I'm curious to know what your thoughts are the challenges with hybrid remote working that you maybe didn't anticipate. Well, you know, a little flexibility is good and you know, when you have 
total flexibility, you have to kind of be careful that you don't forget to do your work. And um, I've usually done pretty well with that. Probably part of the reason is that it was really easy to kind of stay disciplined when we were in the middle of the early part of the pandemic and nobody wanted to go anywhere anyway, and you were afraid to go out. So there was a period of time where it was easy to just stay in and do do the work. But I've managed to kind of get a routine for myself and carve the time out and um, understand when I can make up time and things like that. So I haven't had too too difficult of a time, honestly, getting used to it. I I think mostly because of the beginning, when I first started doing it, you just had to be, you didn't have anywhere else to go and you had to be disciplined. And then you mentioned a little bit that your, it sounds like your patient population now is mostly patients within the military. Is that correct? I heard that correctly. They're not patients, they're they're students. students. Okay. So how has been working with that group of people as opposed to the other areas of groups that you've been working with? Well, it's adult students in a wide range of ages. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them are traditional college age or, you know, early 20s. And some of them are people that have three or four kids and, you know, a family. And they've, you know, been in the military for 16, 18, 20 years. So um, I've got a wide range of students from that standpoint. So you've got people with very different backgrounds and a lot of lived experience, some more than others. So that's, that's been very different. And I think they have different concerns than the average traditional college student for the most part. You know, I don't, you know, my, my kinds of excuses for this is why my, my paper is going to be late is that, you know, we found out last night that we're going out in the field for the next three days and I'm not going to have internet access. Um, I'm getting deployed in three days and I'm going to be gone for the next three weeks. What should I do? I don't know if I'll have internet while I'm away. I mean, we're used to that. This happens all the time. I mean, there's just different problems and you just adapt and move on. I feel like athletic trainers though are really strong in that ability to adapt and advance, right? And yeah. Like the Mac- I, I, professional MacGyvers, yeah. so to speak. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there are other, other people that come in that maybe have just taught and not been an athletic trainer that might not adapt to that quite as easily. Vicki, looking back on your career, if you could go back and talk to yourself at 25 years old, what advice would you give? Yeah, boy, <laughs> lots, lots of things, right? But uh, probably the biggest thing that I would say is that I, I would be less single-minded. You know, when I was young, and, and especially the first five or 10 years of my career, I, I just really focused everything on on being the best athletic trainer I could be and providing the best care, the best service, the best everything I could to the the athletes I work with. And, and that's really all I cared about. I mean, I did it for years and I loved it. I didn't complain about it. I didn't think about it. I did it without a second thought. Um, and I, I have lots and lots of other interests, but I, I didn't do as much as I probably could have to, to pursue them. And, you know, now we talk about work-life ratio and and trying to balance these things out a little more. And and I think that, you know, if I could talk to myself, I would have really said, you know, this isn't the only thing and that you've got a lot of years to work and you should do some other things too. And this isn't the only thing. Okay. So let's roll with that though. So Vicki Graham wakes up tomorrow morning. <laughs> there is not a single meeting on your schedule NATA committee meeting got rescheduled for another day because of the snowstorm that's projected to come drop anywhere from five to 180 inches of snow and it might rain. (laughs) And work told you to take the day off. You've deserved it. What are you filling your schedule with? 
Well, gosh, I, I'm for sure out somewhere, probably in the woods with my dog, taking a walk somewhere. Depend, you know, if it's snowing, I guess I'm not in my garden either. Still trying to figure out how to do that in the winter. And I know it can be done because I, I have a book from someone in Nova Scotia who does it quite successfully. So she can do it. Anybody if you can, have the but, ticket, please send it my way. Yeah, but um, I'm pretty sure I could do it in Dallas all year round. <laughs> I bet I could. You know, I uh, I gardened for the first time this past summer. It was my first garden in Texas. And I have to tell you, gardening in Texas is violent. It's violent. The amount of bugs that are coming to destroy everything you've grown. I mean, I'm a beginner, so I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but the squash borers, whatever, squash vine borers, they took out my whole crop. There's actually, well, you know what, Tracy, let's just post this YouTube video in the show notes for funsies. But um, (laughs) my my boyfriend, Jason, is a video editor and actually made a, a video to try and help my mental wellness because of these bugs. So I welcome the come on down. If you can grow a garden in Texas, you are you are an expert because well, it's not you just have to get to research the bugs. If it's, if it's not have... the bugs, it's drought. It's 110 degrees. But um, I mean, people do it just like they do it in the snow. Wait, exactly. There's way to shade. There's a way to shade it. And you got to research the bugs and how to prevent them. And there's, you know, little other bugs that you put in your garden to eat the bugs that you don't want you want to keep out oh man you just keep trying again katie you know it, did you grow any just like work? athletic training macgyver right. and you persevere right trying. Keep trying. <laughs> it'll work you'll grow things uh, i didn't think this podcast was going to become a mental support Me group for gardening woes <laughs> but here we are um all right so gardening hanging out in the woods with your dog what else you have the whole day Oh man, but that's you know that's that's plenty. That's a lot. You know, if it's snowing, I guess I put the snowshoes on. But yeah. um, you know, and if it's snowing, I'm putting the snowshoes on and then coming home and sitting in front of the fire for sure with something nice and hot to drink. Absolutely. Um, another question we're actually asking every board member on these interviews, Vicky, is um, President Derringer has often said that she wants to leave the profession better than she found it. In fact, she's incorporated into her mission as NATA president and references often. So as a new District 1 director, what are some ways that you try to leave the profession better than you found it? Well, Katie, I, I you know, I have to say I'm I'm 100% in agreement with uh, President Derringer about, about this. Um, I kind of have always thought the same thing. I want to leave the profession better than I found it. And, and I think all of us who, who serve or all of us who, who are in the profession want to see the profession grow and, and evolve and things for things to be better for everybody who's coming after us. And, you know, change, change happens really slowly and it takes time. And one of the things that I, that I think is important is to try to, to raise people up and, and bring them along. You know, I've tried to help other state officers or state associations with um, issues that they're facing. I've consulted with them on things like bylaws or, you know, updating their policies and procedures or, you know, helping them find resources for treasury issues that they've had. I've consulted with people related to legislative and, and uh, regulatory issues so that they can help update their practice act based on our experiences in Connecticut. So I've, I've done a lot of things like that, but I've also really always tried to identify people who are interested, like I mentioned earlier, in becoming involved. I've nominated so many people for elective office and, and other 
positions that, and they don't even know it. And they've gone on and served and served, you know, well. And, um, and it's mostly because, gosh, this is a person that emailed me two or three times and I can tell they're interested in this issue. And, you know, now we have a call for nominations and I'm nominating people. And gosh, what do you know? Sometimes people, they take, they accept the nomination and get elected. So I, I think part of it is just identifying people that will continue to help move the profession forward by serving. I think that's important. It's not certainly the only thing, but I think, you know, it takes kind of, it takes a village to raise a child and it takes a village to push the profession forward. And it, and it has for years. And I'm, I'm, Absolutely. I'm appreciative of the people that came before me. I, I love going to meetings and seeing them there. And, you know, I'm, I'm really appreciative of that. And I, it's a little disheartening to hear people complain about how, how much farther we have to go and nobody ever did anything. And now we're finally going to be the people that make this happen. And it's people have been pushing this profession forward for the entire decade, 1950. So mm -hmm. um, it's been happening. And I think we all have to remember that. So Vicki, if you could develop a call to action to that village of <laughs> members over the course of the next year, you mentioned earlier in this chat about just how we are in such a pivotal place right now, both as a, a membership and as a profession. So looking at the next year or two, what would be your call to action to that village to help us as we continue to move forward? Well, I, I, I think that we have to find ways to engage the village. Um, mm -hmm. I think we're, we're starting to do a really good job of that as we're rolling out the new strategic plan. And I think at, from a district director standpoint, I think we have to really work hard to engage the members in our own districts and the, and the members within our states. You know, I always hear people talk about, well, the NATA this and the NATA that, you know, we are the NATA. It's a member organization and every single one of us who's a member is part of the NATA. So it's not anything else. It's so you have a voice and it behooves you to get involved and to let your voice be heard. And there are people that want to hear your voice and want to have conversations with you and want to understand what your perspective is. Um, and I think we have to find a way to, to make people feel that again. I mean, I, I've always kind of felt that, but when I started out, there was were far fewer members and it was easier to feel that. And I think now a lot of people have, you know, said they don't feel that. And I think we've got to find ways to engage them and kind of meet them where they're at and let them understand and see what's happening, that what the leadership of the NATA is doing in concert with the national office staff, what's happening to help move the profession forward. And it does affect you every day. And your voice is important. And I think we've got to give people that forum to communicate it in, in an appropriate way, in a way that isn't just a, a complaint that is actionable and lets them feel like they are they are being heard and that people are taking what they're saying seriously and that there's action happening as a result of it. Mm -hmm. I love it. So Vicki, you've been a longtime member of NATA. Um, what item items or resources have you found to be the most beneficial or produced the most ROI to your investment? That is an easy question to answer, but it's also a little little bit difficult for me to answer right now. But I'm I'm going to tell you tell you the, the the answer I've been giving people for quite a few years. The best thing the NATA has done was fund the state legislative grants. Um, there's no question in my mind. It's moved the profession forward. It's it's helped states with both 
updating their Practice Act and with athlete safety legislation. And the athlete safety legislation really and truly things like the concussion bills and AEDs and those types of things, those things all helped provide visibility for athletic trainers. And it helped us as we worked to either obtain licensure or update practice acts um, and, and things of that nature. There's there's no question. Um, I know speaking for Connecticut, I know that we couldn't have done it without it. And I know that's the case in, in many, many states. So to me, that's the number one return on investment because we have all but one state now that is regulated and we're going to get there. I know that we're in a place where we can't give the grants right now, but I hope that we can find a way in the future to, to support states moving forward. And, and perhaps that comes back. I don't know. I can't predict the future, but I, that's my answer. Beefing up revenue power is going to be key for sure. It is. it is. And it's all tied in together. We, you know, we need membership and we need engagement. So I, you know, it's all tied together. We can't do it without our members and bottom line is the most fundamental part of being able to practice as an AT is our state regulation. You know, I think that's critical and I think it's important for the association to support that. Vicki, this discussion has been great, but as we wrap up, what final thoughts do you have for our listeners? Um, well, I want to say I am, am thankful for our members. I hope that you understand that the board and the NATA staff are working diligently to advance the profession and work on all of our behalves. Um, and I hope you'll you'll get involved. And if you aren't able to get involved, but you have concerns, I hope you'll reach out to your, your state president, your district director, or anyone else in leadership, President Derringer, anyone. And I think, you know, what you have to say is important and we're going to listen. So I'll wrap up with that, Katie. And Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed this. We've enjoyed having you, Vicki. Thank you so much for your time coming on today and chatting with me. Um, to all of our listeners, thank you for joining in and listening to another series of our dedicated podcast. Make sure to head back and check out the show notes. We're going to link a lot of fun things and great resources to utilize as part of listening to this. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like us to ask um, in follow-up to any of our panelists or our future panelists, feel free to drop them in our social media, or you can always email them to engage at nata.org. Until our next series podcast, have a great rest of your day and thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Dedicated, a special series of the NATA cast. All resources mentioned during this episode can be found in the show notes or at nata.org slash podcast. Listen, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you thought or even what you want to hear in future episodes, send an email to the NATA cast at nata.org. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the NATA cast and rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time.